The first Bible reading today comes from Mark chapter 14, um, starting at verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. The second reading comes from Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Cool under pressure is how people describe Captain Sully Sullenberger. You may have heard of him before. Sully was the captain of US Airways Flight 1549, which back on the 15th of January in 2009, shortly after takeoff, struck a flock of geese and lost power to both of its engines. There are 155 
people on board and Sully and his co-pilot in that moment of the bird strike worked out that they wouldn't be able to return to the airport they'd taken off from and instead ditched their plane into the Hudson River. All 155 people on board survived. You've probably seen the photo of the plane in the river. There's the photo on the screen behind me. After the incident, the captain, Sully, he said it was very quiet as he worked. His co-pilot, Jeff Skills, and I were a team, he said, but to have zero thrust coming out of those engines was shocking, and the silence, and it just tapers off. After landing in the river, apparently Sully was the last person to leave the plane. He made two sweeps through the cabin, ensuring that all of the passengers and all the crew had disembarked before he stepped off the plane. The mayor of New York at the time, Michael Blomberg, called him Captain Cool. Sully, I want to suggest, was a man who was cool under pressure. The reality is, is that the incident took its toll on him and he suffered symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder in the subsequent weeks, including sleeplessness and flashbacks. And he said that that moment of ditching was the worst sickening pit of your stomach falling through the floor feeling that he had ever experienced. And even after he said that, though, he's still regarded as Captain Cool, a man who was resolute under pressure. Now, I tell you about this because today I want you to see that Jesus is also resolute under pressure. And we see him bearing up under pressure in an amazing way. And I want to suggest to you that for Mark's initial readers, the, the first people to read or listen to the story of his gospel, Jesus, I think, is here being presented as an example of what to do if they too face persecution. And I want you to see that I think this passage stands in contrast to the next one that we're going to look at in just a few minutes with Peter, who seems to fall apart when put under pressure. On one hand, we have Jesus who remains resolute, cool and calm. And as we'll see in a few minutes, Peter who crumbles when under pressure. For those of you who are joining us today, we've been working our way through Mark's Gospel for quite a while now as a church. And over this Easter season, we've been looking at the events immediately in the lead up to Jesus' death. Over the last few weeks, we've seen the mounting pressure from the religious leaders. We've seen Jesus preparing his disciples. And on Good Friday, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. In our passage today, we've seen Jesus arrested in the garden and now he's with his enemies, with the religious leaders, with the Sanhedrin. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 53 of Mark chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles open, please turn there and read with me. This is what verse 53 of Mark 14 says. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chiefs, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at a fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not disagree. They come at Jesus, hadn't they, with clubs and swords, and it's, it's late in the night, and, and Jesus is taken to what seems to be the house of the high priest. 
And by this stage, the crowds that were following Jesus have now long gone. His disciples, most of them fled at his arrest, and only Peter remains. And now even Peter is not at Jesus' side. And he's now surrounded by the Sanhedrin. Mark doesn't tell us that all 71 members of the Sanhedrin are there. And and indeed, given it's late at night, that's probably not the case. But the account certainly helps us to see the power imbalance here, doesn't it? Jesus is in the place of the high priest, probably his home. It's, It's his territory. And if not every single member of the Sanhedrin is there... Well, there's still quite a lot of them, maybe up to 70 people surrounding Jesus. And his one remaining disciple, Peter, is now physically distant out in the courtyard. And in this place, Jesus' opponents, they're looking for evidence to put him to death. It seems they're willing even to make up stories at this point to testify falsely against him. In verse 58, someone stands up and says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days build another not made with hands. They're on the attack. The commentators are a bit divided as to what's actually happening here in the high priest's house. It doesn't seem like an official trial. Perhaps what's happening here is the Sanhedrin are are testing and exploring with Jesus, trying to find out what mud they flick, what sticks. Trying their case, getting ready to hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities. But what I want you to see is that throughout much of this, Jesus just remains silent. A cool captain. Let me read from verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. A cool captain. Perhaps here we're seeing, again, Scripture being fulfilled. Do you remember the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? In verse 7 of that passage in Isaiah 53, it says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb to the slaughter. At this point, maybe 70 people are attacking Jesus, accusing him. Some are doing it falsely, and Jesus stays silent. That is until the high priest asks him a question Are you the Messiah? the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I want you to see here that Jesus' answer is simple and affirmative. Throughout Mark's Gospel, there have been many times, haven't there, where we've seen Jesus telling people not to tell others about who He is. Do you remember that? When he gets healed and someone recognizes him, he says, don't tell them who I am. We've told that, the Messianic secret. But now, at last, here in the high priest's house, the secret is well and truly out in the open. Indeed, rather than being secretive or being elusive, Jesus seems now determined to explain what he means by being the Messiah. And Jesus does that by referring to two Old Testament passages that are all about kingly authority and dominion and power daniel 7 and psalm 110 
And the effect of Jesus' declaration here is to to reinforce his unending dominion and power and glory. And I want to suggest to you that, in a way, this is the high point of Mark's gospel. Commentators call this the Christological climax of the gospel. See, at a human level here, Jesus is trapped. He's overpowered and he's outnumbered. One man on his own against the whole Sanhedrin. One of the commentators says it this way, at the narrative level, he is overpowered and cannot save himself. But at the theological level, he reigns supreme. What Mark is showing us here is, here is King Jesus. Here is a man with everlasting authority and dominion and power. And he's standing before his persecutors with confidence knowing that to be the case. Captain Sully, it turns out, was a very, very well-trained pilot. He had over 20,000 hours of time in the cockpit and he was also trained in investigating air accidents. Two years before that flight ditched into the Hudson River with him at the controls, he founded and became the CEO of a company called Safety Reliability Methods, a firm that provided strategic and tactical guidance to enhance organisations' safety and reliability. And in a way, you could say Captain Sully was the best-equipped pilot to be flying a plane without engines over one of the world's busiest cities. And maybe that helped him to be Captain Cool. Maybe his sense of who he was and what he had been trained for enabled him to let his sense of self just take over. In a way, you could say Captain Cool was born for the job of landing a plane on the Hudson River. If he couldn't do it, nobody else could. You know, after the crash, he was criticised by some for not trying to return to the airport. And then they ran simulations and they showed that in the heat of the moment, he made the very best decision. I want to suggest he knew who he was. But more importantly, I want you to see that Jesus knew who he was. I want you to see that Jesus knew that he was the Messiah and that meant that he was the king who had been given everlasting dominion and everlasting authority and everlasting power. And yet, he also knew that to be that king, he needed to die that he needed to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 because that was the Father's will and that was the Father's plan. And so here in the high priest's house, late at night, he faces his persecutors with a great sense of resolution. From a human perspective, he's doomed, isn't he? But theologically, he reigns supreme at this point because he is the Messiah, the Son of God of the Most High God. In a moment, we're going to come back and look at Peter, and I want you to see the contrast. But right now, we're going to sing about this Messiah, Jesus Messiah, name above all names, Blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel. The last Bible reading is from Mark 14, starting at verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. 
You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Some big emotions in this passage, I think. Shame, guilt and fear. Powerful emotions on view. Now, the sort of emotions that get your heart pumping and the adrenaline flowing through your body. I want you to think back to the last time you were really scared. A couple of years ago now, I was doing a few jobs out in the front yard of my house. The kids were out there with me. I'm not sure what I was doing, maybe a bit of gardening or some tidying up or something like that. And then someone asked where Gus was. Gus was my five-year-old at this time. And I hadn't seen him for a while. So I went inside and I called out his name, Gus, Fergus, where are you? And there was no answer, so I went out into the backyard. Gus, where are you? No answer. Into his bedroom now. Gus, Gus, no answer. My heart starts pumping. I wonder if you know the feeling. He's not responding and I'm calling out louder and louder. I started to run now and I'm running up the street, around the corner as fast as I can go and I'm bellowing out of the top of my lungs, Gus, where are you? And because I'm scared, I'm doing that sort of stupid running. You know, arms are flailing everywhere. And I'm screaming by this stage. I can't find him. And I go back home and I'm kind of out of answers. And then the car door opens and Gus pops out and a big smile on his face. For him, it was the funniest thing ever. He'd been hiding in the back of the car while we are looking for him. I was just relieved, too relieved really to be cross at that point. But I want to suggest to you that fear makes us do strange things. It makes us do a stupid run up the street with arms going everywhere, screaming out your kid's name at the top of your lungs. Fear grips us. And I wonder what role fear played in Peter's action in the story that Tom just read to us. In verses 66 to 72 of Mark chapter 14, we see Peter denying Jesus three times. It's a a pretty well-known story, isn't it? The, The failure of Peter. And I think it'd be quite easy for us to kind of get on the Peter bandwagon, that you're so silly, Peter, how could you do that? Before we jump on Peter and accuse him, I want you to firstly notice that he's the only disciple left at this point. When Jesus is arrested, the others all flee. It's now only Peter at this stage who's following, and he follows Jesus right into the courtyard of the high priest. Before we start thinking about Peter's failure, we need to recognise that by this stage in the story, the other disciples might have been home tucked up in their beds. But at least he was still near Jesus. If you read yourself into this story and you see yourself behaving differently to Peter, remember that he was the best of the remaining 11, even if he ended up going on to deny Jesus. 
In verse 66, a servant girl approaches Peter. And I think this is worth noting here that while Jesus is being questioned by maybe 70 people that make up the Sanhedrin, highly trained religious leaders, Peter's being questioned by a servant girl. Now, my intention here is not to denigrate servant girls, but can you see the comparison? 70 religious leaders and one servant girl. The contrast is huge, isn't it? And have a look at what the servant girl says in verse 67. You can read it there. Looks like to me that there's disdain in her voice. You are with that Nazarene, Jesus. It's like saying you are with that filthy man who's from the back of whoop whoop. Nazarene wasn't a good place to be from. And in that moment, Peter has a decision to make, doesn't he? Does he stand firm at this point or does he fold? It's not an easy decision to make. Once you've folded, it's very hard to stand back up again, isn't it? Once you've started down that path of denying Jesus, it's very hard to say, oh, yes, 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 I was with him. He is my master. He is my Lord. He is my king. What does Peter do? Is he like Jesus? Is he like Captain Cool? Is he resolute? I mean, he's only talking to a servant girl at this point. He's not, is he? He capitulates instantly. He says, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he walks away. And he goes and hides in the shadows. But again, the servant girl challenges him. And again, Peter capitulates. And soon others recognize Peter. Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. People said he had an accent. Again, I wonder if fear is driving Peter here. And he curls down curses and swears at them. And then the final denial. I don't know this man you're talking about. And the rooster crows the second time. And Peter remembers, doesn't he? And now there's shame and guilt mixed into the emotions of fear. And he just breaks down and weeps. Because these are powerful emotions, aren't they? Fear and guilt and shame, they're powerful emotions. Peter is the one, remember, who said that he would never deny Jesus. And now he's just done it three times. In Luke's Gospel, Luke gives us another little bit of information at this point. It tells us that Jesus could see Peter across the courtyard and as Peter denies him the third time, Jesus looks him straight in the eye across the courtyard. Can you imagine how Peter must have felt? Horrendous shame. And yet, I think we all know what that's like to some extent. I think we all get a a sense for the guilt that must have shot through Peter's heart. For you and I, it might be a different scenario, but I imagine most of us know what it feels like to be shamed or to feel guilty. Probably know what Peter was going through. So what I want to do with you is is help us get into Mark, the gospel author's head at this point. And I want us to ask the question, Why does Mark include this passage in his gospel story? Why has he chosen to tell us about Peter's denial of Jesus? It's not a nice story, is it? It doesn't bring forward nice emotions. It doesn't paint Peter or the early Christian church in a very positive way. So what is Mark doing with this story? Now, we can only guess, can't we? We can only... uh, Use our, use our imagination and our brains to try and work out what we think Mark is doing. But here's what I think. I think Mark is trying to prepare the early church 
and us today as readers to prepare us for when we face opposition or when we face ridicule. And for the original readers of Mark's Gospel, opposition was beginning to mount at this time. Christians were beginning to face more and more persecution. And so I think the story of Jesus before the Sanhedrin and Peter in the courtyard with the servant girl function as two case studies. Two people under pressure. Jesus, like Captain Cool, like Captain Sullenberger, silent and resolute, but also fully aware. And then we have Peter, on the other hand. And he capitulates, not when faced with the full and overwhelming presence of the Sanhedrin, but when questioned by a lonely, single servant girl. And yet I reckon we can all relate to Peter. And I'm sure then that what Mark is doing here is issuing us with a bit of a warning. And it's a good warning for us to hear when we sit in the calm and the quietness of this hall. I'd like you to see that if it was possible for an apostle, someone like Peter, when confronted with, well, a servant girl, to deny Jesus, if it was possible for Peter, one of the leading apostles, to deny Jesus, then surely we are supposed to take this passage as a warning. Especially if we're not prepared. But there's also a wonderful encouragement in this passage. It's a warning on one hand, but also a wonderful encouragement. Because Jesus didn't capitulate, did he? He stood strong, he bore up under the pressure, and therefore he is the example we should be following, not Peter. And yet in the story of Peter, there's something also lovely and encouraging for us. Especially those of us who feel like we're a bit like Peter, like we've dropped the ball or we've fallen short in this area. Maybe you too have denied Jesus or failed to live up to the expectations he sets. And here we see the example of Peter also doing the same. The Apostle Peter also doing the same. From this point in Mark's Gospel, if you read on, the disciples fade out of the story altogether. There's no more mention of the disciples in what happens in the next few verses. The spotlight in Mark's mind is well and truly on Jesus and on his crucifixion. And I think in a way, he's written the disciples out. It's not one of, the, not one of Jesus' disciples who carries the cross, for example. Or not one of Jesus' disciples, it seems at least, who gets the sponge that's filled with wine vinegar and lifts it to him on the cross. And it's the women, not his disciples, who Mark tells us are standing at a distance and watching Jesus on the cross. It's not one of his disciples who takes Jesus down from the cross. Can you see they've faded out from the story here? But if you've got your Bibles open, come with me to chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 6. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had gone to the tomb at this point. The stone had been rolled away. Jesus was not in the tomb. Instead, there was a young man dressed in a white robe. And here's what it says. Mark chapter 16, verse 6. The young man says, Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Here's the encouragement, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. 
Here's the encouragement. Go and tell his disciples, those ones who left him in the garden, and Peter, the one who denied him three times. Here's the assurance for us, to, for us today then. There's always a way open for repentance and forgiveness and restoration when it comes to God. Through the work of Jesus, each one of us can be forgiven. Each one of us can be restored. Each one of us can come back into relationship with God. That was the case with Peter, wasn't it? He might have denied Jesus, turned his back on him, and yet the angel here in the tomb says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. I hope that's an encouragement for you today. Peter was indeed restored, wasn't he? He goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem. And if you read Acts, he preaches powerfully and many believe. I reckon many of us know what Peter felt like in the high priest's courtyard that night. We know what it feels like to be confronted about our faith. And my guess is that these confrontations that you might have already experienced in this life, they're only going to increase in the years to come. Are you prepared for that? I think Mark is trying to prepare us for that in this story here. And he wants us to follow Jesus, not Peter at this point. But at the same time, he wants us to know that there is always restoration and always forgiveness possible with our great God. I'm going to pray. Father God, we thank you for for these passages in Mark chapter 14, which paint the picture of your son, Jesus, who confronted his arresters with calm confidence and then stood before the 70-odd people of the Sanhedrin and was silent in fulfillment of your scriptures and yet was fully aware of who he was his great declaration about his authority and his dominion and his power as your Messiah. Father, we pray that you would help us to follow after Jesus, that we would be like him in the way in which we live. Help us to have great confidence that you will make the world right and therefore we can stand firm. But Father, we also thank you for the example of Peter and for the way in which that shows us that there is always forgiveness possible with you, that restoration is always possible because of the work of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.